going to uh, have the reading in uh, just a minute or two, but I just wanted to start talking and, and the sermon uh, with a little bit of introduction. A few years ago, the BBC's Today programme on Radio 4 ran a survey looking for the nation's favourite poem. I wonder if you can guess which it was. Um, this is a, a rhetorical question, obviously, but the winner was Rudyard Kipling's If. You know, if you can uh, keep your head well all about a losing theirs and blaming it on you and so on. But I wonder what the result would have been if someone did a survey looking for the nation's favorite quote from the Bible or the nation's favorite scripture. I suspect that you would get a, a wide range of quotations in a mixture of correct uh, biblical quotations, but others which people think they sound as if they may come from the Bible. And some, no doubt, will actually be from Shakespeare or other well-known uh, authors. Uh, indeed, many may actually express biblical principles to a greater or lesser extent. For instance, you might get, the quality of mercy is not strained, it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. Portia's speech from the Merchant of Venice. Or John Donne's, no man is an island entire of itself. And perhaps, since the Bible has proverbs, we might get one good turn deserves another, or many hands make light work, or do as you would be done by. Now, actually, that is, of course, a, a, a scriptural thought, because it's a version of love your neighbor as yourself. But sadly, we'd probably also get classic biblical misquotes, such as money is the root of all evil. But amongst the genuine scriptures, which would be the favorite? Well, if you took all the answers together from committed Christians on the one hand to those not sure of anything in particular and non-believers on the other hand, I would hazard a guess that somewhere very near the top of the list, if not the outright winner, would be Psalm 23. Perhaps one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. And so we'll ask Keith now if he would just read that, please. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your, your rod and your, and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Keith. <clears throat> now, while Psalm 23 is very familiar, it is perhaps that same familiarity which can sometimes leave an overall impression of what the psalm says, but can actually hinder seeing all that there really is in it. And in particular, perhaps, uh, there tends to be a focus in people's minds on the first three, possibly four verses, the ones that you could refer to perhaps 
as the shepherd verses. And the last two are um, sometimes perhaps a little ignored, but, but uh, just sort of added on as a bonus. The Psalms are a wonderful blend of two contrasting aspects. One is a statement of fact. It's a job description for the real shepherd of biblical times. Of the care with which he looked after the practical and physical needs of his flock. And the other aspect, of course, is the parallel of the care with which God, our great shepherd, looks after the spiritual needs of us, his flock. The job of the shepherd would probably have been far better understood in the days when David wrote the psalm, and the picture of God painted in the psalm would perhaps have been clearer to people then. It would have meant more than it does on the surface to people nowadays. But the good shepherd is only one of the pictures of God in this psalm. And as well as touching very briefly on the shepherd image, it is another image of God that I want to look at briefly this morning. This is a great banqueting hall, and that's perhaps not normally the first sort of thought that comes to mind. The psalm starts off straight away with making our relationship with the Lord very personal. It doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd or the Lord is the shepherd. It says the Lord is my shepherd. And to admit to the Lord as being our shepherd is to signify our acceptance of the Lord as the one we want to follow. Signifies a commitment to him. In past times, the shepherd led the flock, of course. He went ahead and they followed. He didn't chase along behind on a quad bike with a couple of sheepdogs. <clears throat> Psalm 23 is often included in wedding and funeral services, but I wonder how often the words, the Lord is my shepherd, are sung by people who may know the words and the tune, but who really don't mean that the Lord is their shepherd. Indeed, who really don't want the Lord to be their shepherd and may well deny it if you challenge them with it. Because to allow the Lord to be our shepherd is to submit to him and follow in the paths where he leads. And sadly, many people would reject that. When we say, the Lord is my shepherd, then it should be said with a serious and solemn understanding of the commitment we are making. <clears throat> me. Moving on now to, then to, to verse four, to the last part of the psalm. Verse four really almost comes into both parts uh, here. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So verses one to three, consider the gentle shepherd. But now the psalm has moved on to another part of the job of the shepherd. It draws a picture of being in a desperate situation. The impression is not just of a valley, but a valley in deep shadow implies somewhere 
perhaps steep-sided and dark, and just to emphasize the dangers of attack and wild animals waiting for us there, the darkness is described as the shadow of death, or in other versions, valleys of, as dark as, the, as death, shadows as dark as death. The Bible refers in the book of Judges and Kings to uh, 1 Kings to the dangers of both lions and bears. And David's actions in protecting his own flock are described when he refers to rescuing a sheep from the very mouth of a wild animal and refers to having killed both lion and bear. So the shepherd is armed. The rod has the context of a weapon, perhaps a stout staff. Think of a medieval quarterstaff, perhaps one and a half to two inches in diameter, five to six feet long. That's um, for those who are not, not quite with us or with <laughs> as old as me anyway, that's about 40 to 50 millimeters in diameter and about 1.8 meters long. <clears throat> Whilst the staff is used so that's the rod, and the staff is used by the shepherd then to guide the sheep and protect and catch them. And if you go to Mole Valley Farmers tomorrow, you can buy a classically shaped shepherd's crook that David would have been familiar with. The only difference being that the one that Mole Valley Farmers sell is made of aluminium. <clears throat> but now in the middle of this dire situation, being in this valley of shadows as dark as death, with its dangers, another wonderful aspect of the relationship with our shepherd is revealed. Because at the darkest hour, the psalm suddenly changes from a rather impersonal statement of fact. Verses 1 to 3, remember, it, it refers to uh, the good shepherd. He leads me, he restores me, he guides me. But in verses four to six, it changes into a relationship in which we address the Lord directly. You can't get much more direct than saying, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Not he is with me, you are with me. And with this, there is a change in the relationship of the shepherd and the sheep. For he's no longer just out in front of the flock, but he's now alongside each one of us as our escort and our companion. But whilst it continues the person-to-person -person relationship, there is also much, much more here. Preparing a table for someone would have been understood in those days to mean that they are guests in someone else's house. In biblical times, if a person came as a guest within your tent, within your home, then they were absolutely safe and under the protection of whoever's home it was. Genesis chapter 19 illustrates the solemnity of this obligation when a mob wanted to attack the guests in Lot's home in Sodom. And he even offers his two daughters to the crowd to appease them. So when David wrote, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, people would have understood that this solemn duty of protection 
would be an essential part of what was being referred to. God's people are guests in God's house, and we are therefore under his protection. But take this a little further and see how honored we are. For who is God but the king of glory? And then the king heaps yet more honor on us. For we're not just guests under his protection, but we are highly honored guests. In the Old Testament, the references to anointing with oil refer to honoring or consecrating someone or something so that we are indeed highly honored. 1 Samuel 16 tells us that Samuel had anointed David himself with oil. As an aside, the oil used in anointing not only provided a visual demonstration of favor that the witnesses could see, but it also had many fragrant ingredients. Exodus 30 tells us that the oil included myrrh, cinnamon, and other spices in the olive oil, ingredients that were considered extremely precious. And Exodus 30 also tells us that Aaron and all the high priests were anointed with this oil. And then, in a land where water is a scarce and precious commodity, the overflowing cup is a picture of unbounded and limitless generosity of never being spiritually thirsty. It's a picture of God's goodness and love being poured out on us and for us. Other versions, indeed the one that we just saw uh, on the screen, um, use goodness and mercy as well as goodness and love. It's one thing to survive the danger as in verse four. It's quite something else for it to be turned into such a triumph. These really are triumphal verses, for God is demonstrating to our enemies, whoever or whatever they may be, that we are under the protection of the king and that he regards us very highly. And we have the spiritual riches of goodness and love or goodness and mercy heaped on us, not just for a moment, but they follow us all the days of our life. And then finally, in the last line of the psalm, we see that being invited to be God's guest is to be far more than an acquaintance invited for a day or even for our lives here on earth. It is to be that honored guest to dwell in his house forever. We can only marvel and wonder at the grace of the King of glory that he should allow us to be his honored guests. What amazing love and boundless grace he shows us. But there is a footnote. By the very nature of the world we live in, it is impossible to say that Christians won't go physically hungry or that no Christian will ever suffer from physical harm or persecution or that we won't find ourselves heartbroken, deeply tempted, depressed or distressed. Of course we do. But at these difficult times, we can know that we have the Lord's protection 
guidance and support as our shepherd and our king and that we are much loved sheep of his flock and at the same time we are honored guests at his table what amazing love and boundless grace <laughs>